Welcome to Exhale Bible Discovery. Each week, we'll take a deep dive into the Bible, going line by line and chapter by chapter to discover the truths that God has for us in His Word. Hello, everyone. It's Dr. Paula McDonald, and we are continuing our fantastic, amazing lessons in John. And today we're entering John chapter 13. And last lesson, we went through the whole Jesus story of him being anointed and his triumphal entry. And this week, oh my goodness, we see a model of servanthood, this beautiful Chapter 13 in John provides us with so many lessons. So go ahead, get out your Bible, and turn to John chapter 13. Many, many amazing lessons. So buckle up. I found this quote from Alexander McLaren that he wrote about this section of John 13 through actually 17. And he says, Nowhere else is his, Jesus' speech, at once so simple and yet so deep. Nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. The immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber are his highest self-revelation in speech, even as the cross to which they led to up to his most perfect self-revelation in act. So, We are going to see this beautiful chapter unfold with two different divisions. The first division is Jesus bows to his disciples, and that is verses 1 through 17. The second division that we have is Jesus is betrayed and denied, and that takes us from verses 18 through 38. This was considered to be the Last Supper that's very famous. Everybody knows about it with Jesus and his disciples. And you can imagine the scene, an intimate celebration that was relaxed and very joyful. Only Jesus himself knew what was coming next. His disciples were probably on a high note. I mean, they had just witnessed this triumphal entry, and now here they were sitting around a table with their beloved teacher. And as a church, We are taught the elements of the Last Supper in great detail. I think it's in 1 Corinthians 9 or 10. Great detail of the beautiful elements of the Last Supper. But John, however, he focuses on the servanthood of Jesus as he washed the disciples' feet. And as you will see, this act has great significance for us today as followers of Christ. So, Jesus knew that his hour had come. So, Jesus lived his life knowing that this hour in history would arrive for him. John 12, 23 through 27, he said, For this purpose I came to this hour. This was the time Jesus' public ministry was complete. In about 24 hours, 
he would die his awful death on the cross. And knowing this, Jesus still chose to spend his last hours on earth with the people he loved the most, to show them how much he cared for them, and he bowed to serve and prepare for them for this coming cross event. It also says, having loved his own. Well, Jesus clearly had a special love for his disciples. The relationship between them was very evident. And we, as followers of Jesus, we also fall into this category of being his own people. What a blessing and what an honor that is for us. We are his because he chose us. He gave himself to us. The Father gave Jesus to us and gave us to him. And he purchased us with his shed blood. And because we freely give our lives to him. There's a lot of power in that having loved his own statement. Then it says, to the full extent of his love. Well, Jesus's love did not end at the cross. His love continues for all of eternity. And this is the promise that we each receive when we follow him. You guys, there is no limit to his love. That is mind-blowing. Then we see where the verse says, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas. And while this may appear to be a strange statement, it meant that Judas had long ago already made the decision to betray Christ. He had a plan and intended on the full execution of this plan. When one has a plan, there is always time to make changes or to scrap the plan. Judas showed a calculated intent. All of us, too, we have the opportunity to question things in our lives and weigh the consequences prior to doing anything. When we knowingly enter into a situation that we know is wrong, we are allowing Satan to control us at this time. Ask God during these moments to remove temptation and to flee from wrong situations. Then the verse says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his power. So if you go back to John 3.35, the verse says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Jesus did have a choice in what was coming his way. But by design, just as we have free will, Jesus also had this option. And this alone shows us the extent of Jesus's love for his people and for us. He was a willing participant in what was coming on the cross. And just as Judas made a pact with the devil, Jesus made a permanent pact with God for us. So beautiful and so important. So next we see that Jesus got up, he took his outer clothing off, and he wrapped a towel around his waist. 
And each one of these actions are very intentional and important. So let's break it down. First, Jesus arose. He got up. So breaking the fellowship for a moment, Jesus stood up with a specific purpose in mind. And everyone, no doubt, looked to Jesus as he stood from that table. And he rises up just as he would rise up on the cross in about 24 hours from then. Next, he took off his outer clothing. It was not customary to remove your outer clothing. And this left Jesus wearing what they called a tunic. And slaves and servants only wore tunics. So the removal of the outer clothing by Jesus signified his bowing before his disciples as a servant. It put him in that position of servanthood. And additionally, the removal of this outer garment foretells the removal of sin that he would accomplish on the cross. And then thirdly, he wrapped a towel around his waist. And again, a towel was used by servants to clean and assist others. So Jesus took this towel and placed it on himself. He is demonstrating ultimate servanthood. He shows us that we too are to humble ourselves and to serve others. And additionally, the act of wrapping demonstrates Jesus wrapping his love around each one of us. Nothing in this Bible is written by chance. Everything has such amazing meaning. Next, it says, after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. I can imagine the stunned and confused glances between the disciples and the servants who were witnessing this happening. Here they were in fellowship with Jesus, and now he was doing something that appeared to be very foreign and strange. And they referred to Jesus as their rabbi because they held him in highest of esteem. It would have been unthinkable to have their teacher wash their feet. And foot washing, while it was common in those days to remove the dust from the roads, from the sandals, that was very common to do when you entered a home. But no doubt they had all already washed their feet before they had even entered for this meal. So this seemed very strange at first. And so here Jesus was now offering to wash their feet again. I really want to break this part down where it says he poured the water. And we've already seen the significance of water throughout John. And I want to go through those. I think it's important. In John 2nd, Jesus changes the water into wine. That was his first public miracle. And also in this chapter, we see Jesus cleansing the temple. So we have a miracle and a cleansing by water. In John 3, there was the baptism by water, which was purification by water. In John 4, the beautiful story of the woman at the well, and Jesus asks her to give him a drink, and he tells her about living water 
and never thirsting again. So this water provided forgiveness and grace. And then in John 5, the healing pool, Jesus heals an invalid and orders him to wash in the pool. So there's healing. John 6, Jesus walks on the water. A miracle indeed. John 7, Jesus teaches that everyone who believes will have streams of living water flowing from them. This water pointing to eternal life. And then John 9, Jesus heals the blind man who must wash the mud from his eyes. Again, taking us from spiritual blindness into spiritual awakening. John 12, Jesus is anointed by the oil, which is liquid, which was honoring him. And now here in 13, he poured the water. So major significance there. To pour out to Jesus was foretelling of the pouring out of his blood. And also, I think it's an interesting note about water in Old French language was lavash, from the word lavar, to wash, and from Latin, lavar, to wash. This is where we get the word lavish. So in essence, Jesus lavished his disciples with his love through this water. And the science of water is also to be noted, and we all learned that in school, water is made up of three molecules, two hydrogen and one molecule of oxygen. It is the only substance on earth that exists in three forms, gas, solid, and a liquid. Hmm. Sound familiar with the Trinity? Three forms, but still the same thing. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three still God. And also, The water cycle on earth is essential to life. The constant rainfall, evaporation, filtration systems of the earth, they create a perfect balance that sustains life. And additionally, our bodies are comprised of 75 to 85 percent water. All of our cells, our blood and tissues are surrounded and composed mainly of liquids. A baby in the womb is surrounded and cushioned and protected by a sack of water. And another cool thing about water is the polarity of water molecules that attract one another, which we call a bond. And these molecules attract to one another easily, thus creating the liquid that we call water because it all bonds together. So Jesus's use of water throughout his ministry is super important. Water is special. It is life-giving, healing, cleansing, and life-sustaining. So next, he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And this is the point where Jesus humbles himself before his loved ones and shows them how he is honoring them through this act. I can imagine the scene was in total silence as Jesus simply sat there and performed this beautiful act. He was doing more than cleansing their feet. He was demonstrating a cleansing of sin, and he was seated below the disciples in a stance of humbleness. 
And then we next see Peter saying, you shall never wash my feet. He claims this because he's in shock. And he's like, no, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. And most likely, Peter is feeling unworthy of such an act by Jesus towards him. And then Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Jesus tells Peter that if we don't accept the humility of Christ, that we're not part of him. He's telling us, each of us, you guys, we are here to serve. We are not here to be served. So get rid of your pride and stoop down to serve others like Christ demonstrated. Next, we see Peter saying, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Peter was still trying to tell Jesus what to do. Isn't that just like Peter? We know Peter was bold. And here we see Jesus letting Peter know he needed to be submissive and to just listen to Jesus. And he says, and you are clean, though not every one of you. And this emphasizes that we are all in need of spiritual cleaning. And also, Jesus would have been washing Judas's feet, knowing fully what Judas was about to do. So imagine the anguish of Judas at this moment. Jesus knew his heart and knew what he was going to do. Yet, he included Judas in the foot washing before Judas completed the evil deed. Only Jesus could do this, you guys. Can, I just can't even imagine how difficult that was. But what amazing lesson we find there. Then he says, you ought also to wash one another's feet. And now we see the main lesson here. We are to humble ourselves and sit lower than those we serve. And we are to serve them with selfless dedication and we are to be the example of the true Christian message, which is to serve and love others. Christ says that when we do these things, we will be blessed. And if you've ever served the poor, gone on a mission trip, or any other act where you submit before those who cannot serve themselves, you really do experience an amazing blessing. I went on a mission trip to Guatemala, and we did wash the feet of these orphans. And I can tell you, it was one of the most powerful and profound moments of my life. I could not get through it without crying. It was simply amazing. Now we're going to get into the second division of this lesson, and that is where Jesus is betrayed and denied in verses 18 through 38. And he says, I know whom I have chosen. Well, Jesus, he knows all of his followers. He knows each of us. He says he knows to whom he has chosen, saying, he knows our hearts to the core, and therefore he knows those of us who will go against him. He has this amazing discernment from the Father. And then he says, he lifted his heel against me, and what he's referring to is back in Psalm 41.9. In these times, the sharing of a meal was a huge deal. If one who shared in his ultimate hospitality then 
went against anybody at the table, this was a terrible betrayal. Have you ever opened your home or yourself to someone who then stabbed you in the back? It really is an awful feeling. And then it says, he was troubled in spirit and said, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus needed the disciples to know that he knows all things, and they needed to know that nothing surprises him. And although he knows all things, Jesus still experienced the human side of this emotional betrayal. And then, of course, Peter, our bold Peter, he asked Jesus who it was. And once again, you can almost imagine him sitting up and ready to take down that person who Jesus was going to, he, he was hoping would, would show. Jesus says, the one whom Jesus loved, and it is believed that this is John, the writer of this gospel. And John did not refer to himself in that way as a way of boasting, but he had a very special and close bond with Jesus as shown in scriptures. In the upper room, we find that in John 13, 23, at the cross, John 19, 26, at the empty tomb, John 20, verse 2, and with the risen Jesus in John 21, 20. And then the verse says, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And to dip the bread would demonstrate such honor as a toast at a banquet. This dipped piece of bread would be given to the person of honor. Well, what a crazy juxtaposition here. Jesus was honoring the one person who was about to betray him. And this clearly shows love conquering evil. He washed Judas's feet, and now he's showing him this great honor. And after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And as we mentioned earlier, Judas had already made his pact with the devil. He had resigned himself to do this act. And therefore, after being honored by Jesus, Judas's decision to carry his deed to the end signified his true rejection of Christ. And you guys, here's the warning for us. When we as believers reject Christ, we are now giving an open door to Satan. It's as if we are saying, Satan, just come on in. And then Jesus says, what you do, do quickly. Jesus's heart had to be heavy. And now he was telling Judas, get on with it. Leave and get this over with. And then it says, no one at the table knew. And this statement shows the disciples did not grasp what was happening. And we know Peter would have most likely stepped in to stop Judas because Peter's boldness. So Judas had walked, he had eaten and slept and seen the miracles and heard Jesus's teaching all with him. Yet he still chose to follow men over Christ. And this demonstrates that just because one lives in a Christian home, goes to church, etc., Following Christ is a much deeper commitment. True belief must begin in our hearts. And then it says, now the Son of Man is glorified. 
Jesus is telling them the final plan has begun. His final glorification of the Father was going to happen soon. And he makes five references to glory in these verses. He says, my children. Interestingly, this is the only place in all of the Gospels where Jesus calls his disciples his children. It's a tender moment. And he's telling them that he is their caretaker, their parent, the one who loves them more than anything else. And then he says, I shall be with you a little while longer. Where I am going, you cannot come. And this statement had to be so confusing to the disciples. Here they had followed him all over the countryside, and for three years they were at his side. And now here he is telling them that where he's going, they could not come. At this point, they no doubt had heavy and confused hearts. And then he says there's going to be a new commandment. The Greek word here used for new meant a freshness. And he's telling them of a new and fresh mandate, which was to love one another. And he says that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus is giving us an all a direct command that love conquers all. And love is the main message of the cross. Revenge and anger will not be the rule. And so he says by this, all will know that you are my disciples. And here Jesus tells us, this is how others will identify us, you guys. It won't be by the crosses we wear on our necks or in our homes or other symbols. Love is the way we are to show his love to others. The act of unselfish love is what sets us apart. We cannot claim to know Jesus and then spew words of hate and discord and selfishness. It doesn't go together. And then, of course, Peter speaks up again and says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus tells Peter that he will follow Jesus later. And this statement, no doubt, has major significance to Peter after Christ was crucified. But I'm sure these words to Peter gave him the boldness to indeed follow Christ after the cross. And then he asked, though, in his humanness, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Peter's anguished soul cannot bear the thought of being without Christ, and he tells him that he would lay his life down for his sake. And then Jesus says, you will disown me three times, and this had to rock Peter's boat for sure. Imagine how Peter felt. Here he was telling Jesus boldly that he would follow him anywhere and to be told that soon he would betray his beloved teacher not only once but three times. And the denial of Peter is told in all four Gospels. When he does deny Christ, it's a crisis of faith moment for Peter. And we'll study this more in detail in chapter 18 of John. And for the next four chapters, 14 through 17, we're going to continue to learn how much Jesus loved his disciples and how much he loves us as he leaves us with rich and powerful lessons. And many believe these next chapters 
lay the foundation for our entire Christian faith. And more importantly, these chapters provide us with the in-depth of Christ's love for us. How fortunate we are to have these beautiful words to strengthen and sustain us throughout our lives. So how do you apply these truths from chapter 13? One, is there an area of temptation that you need to give over completely to Christ? Two, what areas of your life do you need to let go of in order to serve others? Three, have you been betrayed by a close friend or relative? And ask God to help you forgive them and to show them love. Four, what are some ways you need to demonstrate love in your own home, your neighborhood, or place of work? Five, like Peter, have you formally denied Christ in any way? Write Christ a love letter telling him you're sorry and pour out your heart to him. And then finally, number six, who in your life needs Christ's love and what is he asking you to do in order to lavish Christ's love in their lives? Have a great week. I look forward to next week in John chapter 14. Blessings to you. Be sure to visit my website, drpaulamcdonald.com, click on podcast, and then exhale Bible discovery for self-study guides and resources to support you with each episode. 